Welcome to Never Just a Dog. I'm your host, John Littlefair. In this episode, I have the privilege of chatting with Andrew Fan, a young man who's faced the toughest battle of his life and emerged victorious. Andrew is a testicular cancer survivor. In this candid conversation, Andrew opens up in a way that is both brave and vulnerable. He shares the unfiltered truth about his challenging journey through chemotherapy and the physical and emotional toll it took on him. Andrew also delves into the often overlooked aspect of a cancer survivor's battle, the declining mental health. So get ready to be inspired, moved and uplifted by the spirit of Andrew Fan. So good to have you here. Oh, I appreciate you inviting me out here. How's life for you at the moment? Yeah, life's good. You know, things are continue on. Nothing's nothing's big, nothing small, right? Everything's big and everything's small. <laughs> I want to dive into your cancer journey, but I've got a question straight off the bat for you. I know you're a massive dog lover. Tell me about the dog that's been in your life the longest. The dogs has been in my life the longest. That would have to be, yeah, we call him Miko, also known as Master Miko or Mr. Miko. <laughs> yeah, so he's, uh, he, he was give, not given, I purchased him a while back, probably like 10, the, 11 years ago. And uh, he's a brown chocolate uh, Siberian Husky. He's also known as a champion Husky, champion sled dog that I used to run him with uh, WASA, W-A-S-S-A, which is Western Australian Sled Dog Association. So we, I, I, I loved running and I bought a scooter and then I got him to pull me along and then I got into the sport and hence the reason why I've got three dogs now. <laughs> so I bet you're wearing uh, maybe shorts or jeans and, and not uh, cold weather gear because there's not a lot of snow in Western Australia. Well, no, but... We do run them in winter only, and it's it gets really cold sometimes. So, yeah, not shorts, but we do wear quite quite you know the sports outfit and run and and run with the dog. So we do get a bit warm. I want to delve into your your cancer journey. How's your health now at this point of time? In my opinion, I, I think I'm very good. Uh, I'm a lot better than what I was. At the same time, no news is good news, right? So if I'm not going to go poking the bear with the oncologist. And say, hey, is there something wrong with me? I'm just gonna keep going with my life as it is until, if if any, if anything comes up. But yeah, that's good to hear, mate. You're looking healthy and, and happy. <laughs> Testicular cancer. When did you kind of notice that there was something that was not right? Yeah. So this is. So I I originally I had felt a lump on my testicle, and it was approximately the size of a pea. Um, it was on my left side and, um, at the time being a bloke, we have that mentality where we just don't really, we we just brush it off thinking it's nothing, right? We, I myself was pushing for my career and trying to get higher up in the, the ladder as well and trying to showcase my abilities at work. So I just left it, didn't think much of it. Um, I left it for about a month, four weeks. And in those four weeks, it grew from a size of a little pea to almost like a size of a grape. And at that point, I knew something was wrong. I had already in my head, I knew I had something serious going on, but yet I still didn't go see a doctor. I, um, 
I felt ashamed. I didn't even let my missus know. She didn't know anything. And this was going on for a while. And then eventually, um, one day at work, I basically snapped because it had grown to a size of almost like a tennis ball and it had encapsulated around my testicle and it felt like someone or something was grabbing hold of it and it was in so much pain. Then I actually went to the doctor, but that's, that's before I went to go see my best friend and he, he works with me as well as a nurse. And I had to, I, I remember I ran from the room, from the theater room and I had run into the change room and um, I instantly called him because I said I had enough. Uh, I, this is stupid. Like I, I, I was swearing, I was aggressive. And um, he said, what's wrong? What's wrong? He, he goes, I, I just need to talk to you, man. Like, can you come see me? And instantly, without a doubt, he came running and he came talking to me. And I told him what has happened and what I felt and what was there. And then, um, yeah, he sat down. He called his boss and said, hey, I got to take Andrew home. And yeah, he took me straight to the doctor and he's the one that convinced me to go see a doctor because it could be nothing, but I, I knew for a fact there was something wrong. Um, but that was me just not voicing it for ages before I actually got someone like my best friend to take me to the doctors. Yeah. What happened next with the doctors? You went in and then they immediately sent you for scans. You're a radiographer yourself, yes, aren't you? I am. So did you, did you know sort of what the process would, would be from there or you kind I of, did. you would have been blindsided a fair bit from this? Well, this was actually during the time of COVID. So during all those lockdowns, so I've, I originally went to the GP. I went to the GP and the GP obviously said, hey, I need to refer you on to urology. And I said, well, okay, not a problem. So he referred me back to the hospital that I work at, which uh, I don't think I should, I'm not going to say anything, but I, I went back to the hospital, went through emergency, gave them the form, the referral form to them. They instantly brought me straight in. Now, when I went in, Within five, 10 minutes, a urology gave a request form. I went to go get an ultrasound and I knew for a fact that from that ultrasound, I knew it was going to be um, cancer, but obviously I was wishing it wouldn't be. It could be just a cyst that they could just drain and it'd be fine. But at the end of the day, I went in for the ultrasound. One of my staff members, well, one one of my colleagues, I should say, scanned me. And then one of the consultants that I know did my report. And then the doctor within an hour came up and you know, and he just said, Hey, look, Andrew, I'm, I'm so sorry to tell you this, this, but, um, you have testicular cancer and instantly I didn't hear anything else. My whole world kind of imploded. Like everything just went black and my mind just went into a spiral of like negative emotions. And, uh, you know, the aspect of just being that, that news just blew me away. And the fact is I work in the profession. And it, I've never been a patient, but now that I'm a patient, I can go, wow, like that blew me away. And the fact that it was during the whole COVID time when there were lockdowns and the hospital was completely in lockdown, so no one could visit. So I couldn't even have my mom there, my dad, my brother. I couldn't have my, my, uh, my fiance at the time, couldn't even attend. So I had received this news and all of a sudden no one could come visit me. No one could come talk to me. I was by myself. And the only people that were there were the doctors, the nurses, which they were fantastic about the whole situation and helping me go through this process. But once I got the news that I had testicular cancer, I didn't know what to do. How did you break it to your fiance? Obviously she would have been devastated. Yeah. So I was still in, in the emergency department. This was actually on a Friday afternoon. And the doctors basically came up and said to me, hey, 
we have we have booked you in for surgery on Monday. Would you like to stay in the hospital? And the fact that I was a staff member, they allowed me to go home. And that's when I actually called uh, my fiance at the time and said to her that, hey, I've just been diagnosed with testicular cancer. And, and it told her and it blew her away as well. And it kind of, she, she knew something was wrong. I wasn't emotionally there for her as well as sexually there for her or anything. It's just because I was so distant and I had such a massive amount of shame for myself at the time. And I felt like I wasn't a man. I wasn't, I wasn't there to provide for her. And um, yeah, so I, I, that's how I broke the news to her. And yeah, I, I don't know. It was just one of those things that it happened as it just did. And it was devastating at the time. So after I had the surgery on the Monday. I returned to the hospital, a complete under anesthetics and stuff as well, put under. And the surgery is the removal of your testicle. And the, it's an incision just above your pelvis. And they pro- migrate the testy up through it. And then they cut it and, and tie off all the extra vessels and everything off there and spermatic cord and everything. And then from there, they stitch you up, leaving you with just the one, one testicle. If, if only one is, well, my, in my situation, one was the only one was infected with the cancer. But I don't remember what happened after surgery because I was, really, I was in, apparently I was in a lot of pain, as my friends would say. Yeah, I was put to recovery and then that's where I just recovered. And it took um, less than 12 hours before or 24 hours before I went home from the surgery. The time and the treatment after the surgery, was there chemotherapy involved? There was. Now, after the surgery, your, well, myself, I was referred on to oncology. And from there, I went to see a very good oncologist the oncologist obviously asks um, a lot of questions and see how they are doing and they get the, the specimen, they identify what the specimen is. And I had what's called a steminoma and it's a cancer of the testes, but we needed to make sure nothing had infected other parts of my body. So that's where you go for follow-up scans such as your CT scans as well as a PET scan. And at the time I just said, oh yeah, sure, you know, that's the process. I'll go get a scan. And it was after the scan that I got even more bad news. And the news was that I had a enlarged paraaortic lymph node. In other words, the cancer had spread to my lymph nodes, which um, is never good. It's basically a highway for it to travel throughout the rest of the body. And that was devastating. That hit me so hard. And, and I just, yeah. So then I had to go see the oncologist again. Now the oncologist obviously spoke to me and she said that 92% of people who have testicular cancer at my stage have a successful run with chemotherapy. So I was like 92%. So 92 out of 100 people are successful in the rate of having chemotherapy and then they become in remission after that. So um, the odds were in a sense stacked in your favor, but there's still that small percentage 100%. that you must, it's a very heavy hit yeah. physically and mentally. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And in my head, some reason I always said, I kept thinking, you know, I'm going to be in that 2%. Instead of saying 92%, that's awesome, right? Um, but in the t- at the time, you know, you get into this negative mindset that you just think of the negative sides of everything, right? I agree. What is that? The power of positive thinking, but it's very difficult when y- you have cancer. 
it, it was it was very very difficult and um yeah it was one of the things that I um had to keep pushing had to had to keep thinking positive but it was very very hard and it's something that I had to learn to accept and 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 deal with in a, on a personal level now after I got the news it had gone to my lymph nodes I had to do it was advised for me to do three courses of chemotherapy. Now, the regime for the chemotherapy for someone who has testicular cancer that has infected other parts of the body is actually quite brutal. For me, it was chemo every day, five days a week. So having chemo every day, mate, that's crazy. Yeah, and the fact that I had it every day for basically six to eight hours in a chair it was harsh. It was so brutal on my body. And I don't wish that upon anyone, not in my worst enemy. And, and the fact is it was, it was, it had changed my body to the point that obviously you lose your hair and everything as well, but the same symptoms of like not eating, constantly vomiting, feeling nauseous, fully dizzy, loss of energy. I felt use, I felt like a baby again, um, to the point that like my missus and my mum and dad would come over to help me go to the toilet. That was how bad it was. And for some reason, I knew the, the first time I had the cycle and on the Friday, they said, oh, we can take your cannula out now and then you can go home and have a rest for Saturday and Sunday. I was like, thank goodness. You know, this is, this is, this is horrible. But there was a drug that was in there on the Friday that it affected me so badly it knocked me out for the entire weekend to the point that I, I felt like I had a full-on cold the whole weekend, hot and cold flushes. I'll get so hot that my bed was saturated in my sweat. And then all of a sudden I would feel so cold, uh, so hot that I had to turn on the air conditioning to cool my body down and put a cold towel on my head. I was unable to get up out of bed to go to the toilet. So I ended up defecating and urinating on the bed and it, it was an experience that I would not do, like I would not wish upon anyone. And it was horrific. It, it, it made me feel so powerless and useless at the same time. How long did the chemo treatment go on for, mate? So I was advised to do three months with the chemotherapy, um, which is the three cycles. So, and each cycle was four weeks. I did two months of chemotherapy and I vividly remember the conversation that I had with my younger brother because I had a scan on the Monday on my my second cycle at the last week, um, which was a PET scan to see how effective the chemotherapy was. And I said to my brother, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I would rather die. It, it, it was it, – and my brother, you know, I would tell him, like, I had enough. I, my body is telling me it's failing and it's telling me no more and – to the point that I just said, no, nah, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do the last cycle. No way. And it was only then that my brother, like he sat down and he spoke to me and he said to me, you know, like you need to, you know, you only have to power through four more weeks of this and then you're good for the rest of your life, you know? And, and he was there to support me and made me feel stronger. And the funny thing is like, as the older brother, I'm supposed to be motivating for him, but he's the one motivating me. And he's always been the one that's motivated me in so many different ways. Sounds like a good brother, mate. Good friend, good brother. <laughs> he's an awesome brother. But yeah, at the end of that scan, I remember 
on the last, on the Friday, I went to do my, my chemotherapy with, with my mum, and I had an appointment with the oncologist and I really did not want to go because I had enough. But then I went to go see the oncologist just before my, my session with chemo and the oncologist goes to me, Andrew, I've got some really good news for you. I was like, no, what's the news? Like in my head, all this stuff was running around my head, you know, good news as in like, it could be anything, you know? When I saw the oncologist and the oncologist said to me, he's like, your PET scans come back clear. Explain that moment. Was it emotional or a relief or a little bit of everything? It's funny you say that because I can feel the emotions running through me right now. I'm getting like a massive amount of goosebumps all throughout my body. Like it is intense. The joy, the happiness that ran through my head and how how it affected me such in a positive way. Like I was like, you know what, there's this mountain that was in front of me and I've overcome this mountain. I'm just on the downward slope now. Like I, I, the doc said, you don't have any more hotspots on your PET scan and it looks like the cancer hasn't grown and it's not, it's good, good news. So she goes to me, it's like, we don't have to do your last month of chemotherapy cycle. That must have been such an amazing moment for you. hundred percent. It was, and then all of a sudden I felt like Superman. I felt so strong that I was like, you know what? Dude, I don't have to do one more day. This is the Friday. I just have to do this one last day of chemotherapy. Even though my body was telling me no, my mindset was like, you know what? This one last day, let's power through this. And my mom, when I told her, obviously she didn't understand anything because she speaks Vietnamese. So I had to translate for her. She was calling up crying, smiling, yelling, and we're in a hospital and she was so happy. I still have a photo of me and her from that moment just so I could remember that moment. And then, um, and then, so then we, we were in such a good celebrative mood that we were like, you know what, let's power through, let's do this. Let's enjoy this last day and remember this moment because I had gone through something so tough. And the fact is, I remember I had a, I had a, what do you call it? Uh, a cut, a, two cards from all my colleagues, all my friends at work. And there was a quote in there that hit me so hard. And the quote was from a friend and she's, her name's Phoebe. She wrote in there that tough times don't last forever, but tough people do. And you know what? She's right. That quote there grew on me every day. And that's one thing that I push through, you know, that I'm going through some absolute tough times at the moment and I'm going to power through and I'm going to be tougher at the end of it. And that's exactly what's happened. Oh, another thing I wanted to add, I forgot. We had organized our wedding and we were going to postpone our wedding because I was going through chemotherapy. But I told my fiance at the time, I said, I'm going to use our wedding as motivation to get through this because I'm not going to give up. And, and the fact is I used that motivation to be with my, my wife and I wanted to marry her no matter what. And the fact is, yeah, so what if I was bold? So what if my skin was really gray for my wedding? I was there, you know, and I went through so much struggle and that was the light at the end of the tunnel that I knew I got to marry my best friend. I knew I got to marry the person that I love and we have been together for like 11 years. That's truly incredible, mate. Oh, wow. What a beautiful story. 
were your dogs also part of helping you through this stage? So obviously the diagnosis and through those horrible chemo stages that you're just so sick. That's a really good question because dogs, well, my dogs, I don't, I think all dogs, I should say, have a, a sense of when something's wrong. And then my dogs had sense that something was wrong. And yeah, they always spend time with you. You know, like when I come home, before I come home from work, they're always got that happy face, you know, and they're jumping for joy. They're wanting food. They want a snack. They want a biscuit. But when I came home, my dogs always came up to me gently because they knew something was wrong. You know, they would tap me. They would give me a cuddle. They would gently roll up in a ball next to me as I slept. Or if I was on the couch, they would lie next to me on the couch, gave me the space that I needed because I sensed something was wrong. And the fact is that them doing that created this almost like a, a sense of protection, if that makes sense. Like they were protecting me in order for me to heal. And that's what the dogs were doing. They were, they were sitting next to me. They were surrounding me to protect me, ensuring that nothing would, you know, attack me or because I was the weakest one in the pack. And I think that's a sense of mentality when I have Huskies because they, they are a pack mentality. But yeah, like I, the dogs also have like, they made me feel protected, comfortable. They're like a teddy bear. So you, you cuddle them, you hug them and they give you kisses no matter what, you know? So they played a huge role in both like my mental aspect of my recovery, but also keeping me smiling keeping me happy, keeping me a sense of normality almost. They, in a sense, assume the role of therapy dogs. Is that kind of cool to say? That is, that, that is perfect. They, they took on the role of a therapy dog. And you're right. It's, it's amazing how the dog has a sense of, of that because they, they're able to determine when you need to be happy and when you are sad. And they know when to be gentle and when to be rough. So. It's, yeah, like you said, my dogs took on that role as a therapy dog and they got me through some really, really tough times when a person couldn't. You also rescued another pup. Tell me about that. Yeah. So she's not much of a pup. She's, she still acts like a pup. They're all pups, mate. (laughs) For all their lives, they're puppies. So she's probably 10 years old now, but yeah, so the story is that the she was found in Mandaring power lines with a couple other dogs and the fact is my name was registered to that dog because it was one of my litters in puppies and i found out by the ranger who called me and the ranger said hey this dog is registered under your name previously and we it's been surrendered now and do you know who the owner is and i said yes i do know who the origin who the owner who I sold the dog to is, I had a whole record of it. And, and yeah, so they said that the owner no longer wants a dog. And I said, I will take the dog. I'm taking her back. She is one of Mishka's dogs and I look after her. That's perfectly fine. But yeah, she is now part of my pack again. And she's with her dad, which is Miko and her sister, which is Laika. And what's her name? Her name's Dandelion. Was that her original name or did she, was that a name that you and your now wife gave to her? No. So the name was given to her by the owner, the new owners. Um, But yeah, so that's Dandelion. We just call her Dandy. 
she's a bit of a lion because she's a menace sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> all the best ones are, I think. They're all the best ones are a bit naughty, a bit cheeky, but or they're just they're the comedian side of the the dog. Some are, some dogs are more zen. They're the, kind of the yoga, the Pilates side, yeah. and some are. Are definitely the the comedians, you know, and then as comedians go, there's all different styles of comedy. So I think dogs have kind of got it, got either it worked out or us worked out. Yeah. That's my belief, anyway. Yeah, that's very true. So have you been a dog lover all your life? I have. It's funny you say that because I um I remember my first dog. I purchased the dog in Malaga in the market. Someone had was selling puppies in the market. I purchased the dog. Bought it, bought the puppy home, didn't tell my parents. And I was living at home at the time. I was at university and I hid the dog from my mom and dad for four days. I managed to hide this pup for four days until it started crying like really loud. And I was like, mom, dad, I'm just going to turn off the TV. And they ran into my room and found this puppy in the corner. <laughs> How did they react? Were you the naughtiest, naughtiest son at that moment? No, I wasn't the naughtiest son, but uh, they certainly thought I was. But yeah, mom and dad, you know, they're like most parents, most Asian parents, I should say, was um, you can't have a dog in the house type of thing. And they never allowed me and my brother to have a dog. And um it's funny enough, my yeah, my my fiance or my wife now, she was the one that convinced me to go get the dog, and I bought the dog, bought it home, and um, yeah, within two hours, mum and dad fell in love with this puppy. Uh, sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens from the dads. The stories that I hear from, you know, my audience is that no, the dog can't be in the house. Like it, it, in a sense, that Australian, real Australian, like old school mentality. No, no, no. Within. Within a second, like they're curled up and yep. the dog is now dad's dog. 100%. It's exactly what happened to my parents. They they were like, oh, no, you have to return the dog and all this stuff. And I was like, no, 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 let's just let's see how it goes and stuff. And then within an hour, mum was like patting it, cleaning it and feeding the dog. My dad was giving the dog like our dinner on the table. And, um, yeah, and they, they absolutely fell in love with this thing. I love that, mate. It reminds me of the Far Side comic strip from an incredible artist called Gary Larson that I believe there's one where the kids have brought this giant squid or something home and convincing mum and dad that they have to keep it because they've padded it. So, And it's in the lounge room. Just the guy, that guy's a master. He's a hero to me. <laughs> squid. It was something like that. <laughs> I want to delve into mental health, if that's okay with you, Andrew. With your journey and even up to now, do you go and see a psychologist? Do you have an ongoing therapy as well to help guide you through to the next stages of your life? Yeah. So it's really cool that you've asked that question because I originally, once I got through everything, I didn't think I needed to speak to anybody. I thought I was fine. It wasn't until my missus approached me and said, why are you always so angry? What's wrong? I couldn't speak to her. I couldn't tell her all these things. And it wasn't until, funny enough, my insurance company contacted me and through my income protection and said, hey, we have services that are available for you to speak to someone. And I said, no, nah, I don't need anyone. You know, I don't need to speak to anyone. And that's, that goes with that mentality of men not not asking for help, right? And it wasn't until... It wasn't until I did something very stupid, like stupid, that I actually said, you know what, I need help. And what did you do? 
I, so I ride a motorcycle and I did something stupid on the motorbike. I had a motorcycle, a Ducati, and I had rode that bike down the freeway thinking that I was absolute bulletproof. And then when I stopped, I realized, how dumb am I? There's something wrong. Yeah, so after I'd come home, I told myself, I gave the keys to my wife and I said, do not give me these keys until I'm, I'm better. And I told her what I did and she obviously, you know, went up in arms about it. Freaked out, absolutely. Yep. And that was when I had contacted the insurance company back and said, hey, can I speak to a psychologist? And it was then, it was still through the COVID time, so it was through telehealth, so it was not, it was face to face, but over a computer. They, they got me in contact with someone, and I can't remember her name, but she was absolutely perfect. It was exactly what I needed. It was someone that I could talk to and express everything and anything to her, and she gave me techniques to combat the difficulties that I was going through. What were some of the techniques? So some of the techniques that I had to go, what I used was originally I had, she tried to use things such as aromatherapy and visual aids in order to calm my, my sense of mind down. Someone like myself, I, visual aids excited me, such as reading a book or watching TV, watching my screen. It was, it was not a calming sense. And it was only until she had introduced me to something, aromatherapy type of stuff, which was creating a different sense of smell to uh, ignite my olfactory senses and bring down my sense of feel, sense of eyesight, sense of hearing, and then that calmed me down. That's so interesting. Did the chemotherapy actually affect your sense of smell, eyesight, hearing in some way? Was that was it linked, or is this am I completely off the track on that one? No, you're absolutely on the on right on the hammer there, on the nail there. It is exactly what happened. And some people might say it didn't affect them, but for me. I ended up like having a really bad case of conjunctivitis in my eye, which caused me to, reason why I wear glasses now, um, my sense of hearing, I developed tinnitus. It destroyed my inner ear, the chemotherapy. My sense of taste has come back a little bit now, um, but at the time, everything just tasted like cardboard during chemotherapy. Funny enough, sense of smell never got really affected. It was, it, I, I still smell chemo when I think about it like it's like that memory and I, I don't like it it makes me feel like I need to vomit but it yeah it really did affect me in in a negative way but having the psychologist go through and talk to me about how I can relate things differently using a sense of smell one of the simple things is I have think of tiger balm right my parents use something similar to tiger balm right um, it's called eagle oil and they used to put that on me whenever I was sick. Every time I was sick, my mom and dad would rub this tiger balm thing on my back to make me feel warm. And that sense of smell was a sense of security because it made me remind me of the good times when my parents looked after me. And having that little bottle of like tiger balm that I can carry around, and when I have an anxiety attack of some sort, I can smell it 
and I, it instantly calms me down. And that's what she taught me. And she taught me how to use my sense of smell to over, to combat my anxiety levels and my depression because it, it brought back mum and dad and the sense of when I was a little boy and how mum and dad looked after me. And that's what they did, you know? Do you still see a therapist now? Uh, I no longer, I have a, I have a therapist, uh, but I haven't seen her in a, in a very, very long time. But that's because I feel like I have done a lot better that I'm in a, in a mental place now that I want to give back to others. That's amazing, mate. What a story and good on you for, you know, getting through. I know you're not out of the woods yet, but getting through. But also I did want to ask about the organisation that you're involved with, which is, I believe it's called MHT, so Men's Healthier Together. Am I correct with that? That is correct. Mate, fire away. Didn't they reach out and contact you? Funny enough, no, they didn't reach out and contact me. Um, <laughs> the the, the organisation had organised what's called Fire Up for Men's Health, and it was with Harry Fisher. I don't know if you know who Harry Fisher is. So Harry Fisher is also an influencer or a content creator on YouTube who does a lot of camp cookings. And he had organized uh, an MHT event for Fire Up For. So basically he had cooked, he had made an absolutely amazing taco steak down at Go Camping. And it was just him cooking up food, but promoting men's mental health. And it resonated with me so much that I was like, you know what? Uh, Harry, I have to come down both for the food, but also to support this men's mental health. Like it was just either you donate a dollar to $20 to a hundred dollars, whatever you wanted to donate. I went down there with a hundred bucks and I said, you know what guys, I'll have two tacos and I put a hundred dollars into their donation. And it was just me going there because I wanted to support Harry in his cause. And then after that, I had met with the organizers there and they had, obviously they approached, they, you know, give you leaflets about information about men's mental health. And I again went through my story with them and I said, Hey, yeah, I'm recovering from, you know, cancer and this is my story. And it resonated with them. And basically they said, Andrew, we, we need to talk to you more. We, we need to email you. We need to. And I said, I am more than happy to put up my hand to assist MHT in any way possible. And when the, when I got invited to the show, which is the four drive show, by Maddie and Tony, I was I was like I was so honoured that they had invited me, and they're like, oh Andrews, you can sell your merch and all that stuff, and I was like, I, I wasn't a content creator, I, I didn't classify myself as a content creator. I just said to them, I said, look, I'm, you know what, guys, how about I I promote men's mental health? I have a story and I want to showcase it at the show, and they said, do it. So I reached out to MHT and I said, hey, I've been, I've been invited to this show. Are you okay with me promoting MHT, Men's Healthier Together? And they said, go for it. And they gave me a whole heap of material, a whole heap of stuff, a banner. And I just said, look, I'll put it out and see what happens. So what's your involvement now with MHT? Honestly, it's just me promoting them. I'm not I'm not trying to get in in any way. It's just me going, you know what? I, I actually resonated with this foundation and it's purely because they are looking for research. They're looking for funding for research to, f to determine the root cause as to why men don't talk, don't speak up and what's going on. 
one of the statistics that MHT releases is that 60% of men die from from health issues that uh, that are preventable because they don't speak up. And and the fact is that a lot of us don't speak up and it, I think it goes back to the root of of the masculinity side of things. Being able to to talk makes you more masculine and more powerful than just holding it in. And I, I witnessed this myself. I did this to myself. So by me not speaking up and hiding the fact that I had an issue with cancer, it kind of ate me up inside. It made me feel even worse. And then when I was able to speak up and tell people of these issues, it opened me up to the point that I was willing to accept people's perspectives and then take on those perspectives and grow from it. I can't thank you enough, Andrew, for creating this incredible episode with me. One last question for you. What's next? The main goal for myself now um, is that I want to share my story with yourself. And hopefully this obviously goes out to the rest of the community. And if it just resonates with just one person, like if I'm able to affect change in the mindset of one person in a positive way, I considered my job complete. I considered that a successful podcast. And even at the show, when we did the show, if I was able to affect one person positively there, I considered that a success. 